Welcome to Closer Look. I'm Maria Morgan. DHS, HHS, government's alphabet agencies can feel like a handful of sticky red tape, but not so fast. Uncle Sam also has some successful ventures helping churches help people. First up, HHS assists churches and charities who are reaching people who are homeless or on drugs or mentally ill. And HHS also recruits churches to help take care of the migrant kids coming in at the border. I'm Ed Lenane, and our guest is Shannon Royce. She is the director for the Health and Human Services Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks for taking the time to join us today at the Museum of the Bible. Thank you, Ed. Grateful to be with you. Most people uh, don't realize that the Department of Health and Human Services is the government's largest grant maker, providing taxpayer dollars to nonprofits. Give us a, a thumbnail, a quick overview of all the sorts of things that HHS gets involved in. Goodness, HHS is involved in major, we have major agencies that the American people know all about. The Center for Disease Control, um, Medicare and Medicaid is managed out of Center or CMS. Um, the Administration for Community Living, the Administration on Children and Families that does all the foster care and adoption programs, Substance Use and Mental Health Services Administration, known as SAMHSA, deals with all the opioid crisis issue and serious mental illness and those kinds of issues. So there are large um, agencies that touch much of the American people. Then there's the specific office here, the Center for Faith, also known as the Partnership Center. Why is it called that? What's the mission, Shannon? The Partnership Center um, is HHS's division that serves faith and community partners around the nation. We work um, with faith partnerships on the congregational side of the picture, so various faith community leaders, um, and also the provider side of the picture. And we've seen a lot of that in providers, uh, for instance, in the opioid crisis doing treatment. Our goal is to work with faith and community partners, engage them in public, private, partnerships to serve the needs of the American people. There's a uh, stated commitment to remove barriers for faith-based groups who want equal access to taxpayer money for things like social services. What kinds of barriers have you identified? What are you doing to help remove those? Well, the, the main barriers we're seeing at this point is really just a lack of understanding of what faith and community partners do. In the treatment arena, um, there are many faith-based partners who are still engaging um, in the work, who are struggling to get federal funding, and we are working to help them do the data they need to do so that they would be eligible, be able to demonstrate their effectiveness. We know they are effective, but faith-based providers think of the people they don't think of all the data. And so when you're looking at grant making, you're looking at the data. So we work with faith-based providers uh, to track their data in a way that it will meet government standards of demonstrating their success. Um, and then we also work inside the agency to help the agency understand the good work that faith-based uh, providers are, are doing. Some may view this as a blurring of that line between church and state. How would you respond to that? Well, I would respond by saying that that the line between church and state is simply a line that says the government should not have an established 
church. But we do have the other part of the First Amendment that we don't often talk about, the free exercise clause. And every faith-based provider has the opportunity to exercise their faith fully um, in a really robust way in their programming. And we work to encourage that. What are some of the specific services now that Health and Human Services through the center here provide and connect to faith-based groups? Can you talk about that? Sure. So one of the main areas we've worked with in the last two years, Ed, is, is in the opioid crisis. In December, we learned that two of the last three years, the age span, uh, lifespan of the American people had actually gone down, which had not happened in probably our lifetime up until the opioid crisis and frankly, the, the concern with the increase in suicide. And so our work has been focused on faith and community partners engaging um, in the opioid crisis. We have done a dozen webinars to teach people how to think about the crisis, what they need to know and understand. Uh, we created a practical toolkit, which we can provide the link for you to have on your website to share with people. We've done learning collaboratives to help providers understand that they can be a faith-based provider and still engage in medication-assisted therapies um, and not give up their faith perspective. They can do both and um, the faith side of the picture and medication-assisted therapies. And we just learned last week really heartening news that for the first time um, in recent years, we actually saw a decrease in the death rate um, with the numbers going down 5%. So there's still so much work to be done in this area, but we are finally seeing a bit of a turn uh, that is really hopeful for us. That's good to hear. You're listening to Closer Look. I'm Ed Lenane here at our studio at the Museum of the Bible. We're talking today with Shannon Royce. She directs the Center for Faith Initiatives for the Department of Health and Human Services. The partnership is focused specifically on some select few issues. You want to talk a little bit about more of those, like uh, addressing serious mental illness. Absolutely. Well, serious mental illness for our office is really, and for your listeners, is really about focusing on the human dignity of every person. I know that that would ring true with your listeners, that we believe that every person has value and that we should treat them as such. Um, We really do have a significant challenge in our nation in the continuum of care for those living with serious mental illness. There's a lot of fear associated with it. And our work has really been twofold. We've been working with the faith community to help the faith community know how they can engage to serve those living with serious mental illness and their caregivers. But we've also been working on the clinical side of the picture to help clinicians know how to engage people who come from a faith perspective, how to be sensitive to that faith perspective, the way they would be sensitive, for instance, to different cultural backgrounds or different racial backgrounds. They're actually taught about that in their training programs, but they're not taught about how to be sensitive to people of faith. So we actually are um, have a meeting planned with clinicians to talk about what it means to be culturally competent when it comes to faith and religion and spirituality. And those are new topics really for much of the clinical community. 
All right. Well, what can you tell us about the center's role with the influx of immigrations along the southern border? How is the HHS Partnership Center connected with that situation? Absolutely. That is really an issue of concern, I know, to us and to the agency and to people around the nation. Um, I think the most important thing that people need to understand is that when unaccompanied children come across the border, that is the portion of the population we deal with um, at HHS. My friend and colleague, Kevin Smith, uh, deals with the DHS side of the picture, Department of Homeland Security. So when folks first come over the border, then DHS will screen them and uh, release the unaccompanied minors to HHS. And that's where we uh, receive those children to provide their care. There are five things really that we do for an unaccompanied minor that comes into our care. And so we focus on placing those children in the right facility. Uh, We have 168 different facilities to meet different kinds of needs. We have 168 facilities, and we want to make sure that child is placed in the best facility for his or her care. The next thing we do within 24 hours, we make sure that that child can contact their parent or a loved one who they want to connect with. We next move them into a complete medical assessment. Have they had their vaccinations? What are their medical needs? Do they have any chronic illnesses? And make sure that all of those concerns are met. And then in the time that they're in our care, they get three square meals a day plus snacks. They get their clothing and their education and they get private and group counseling. We really meet all of the needs that these children have while they're in our care with the ultimate goal of unifying them with a family member or loved one in the United States. So if I'm involved with a faith-based organization or if I'm running that type of charity, I want to qualify for some funding from HHS and your center. Talk about what are the rules? What's the process here? Who do I need to contact? Sure. I'd tell you the the main need that we have at this point uh, would be for more facilities to be open that would serve the needs of unaccompanied minors. Um, I understand from our friends at the Office of Refugee Resettlement that they will be doing another grant opportunity in the coming months for new facilities to come online. Uh, That really is our greatest need. We are doing other kinds of things with faith providers and, and frankly not providers, but just congregational side of the picture to bring their needs, uh, their desires to help care for these kids. So supplies and those kinds of things, um, dollars to support families that are coming out of DHS and into just local churches in those areas, trying to help make connections happen there. But in terms of the grant funding that's available, the main need that we have is for more facilities. Shannon Royce is the director for the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives for the Department of Health and Human Services. Shannon, thank you so much for letting us take a closer look at what's going on at HHS today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Ed. Next, we'll hear how the Department of Homeland Security reaches through faith leaders when storms hit. I'm Ed Linane with our guest today, Kevin Smith. He is the director of the Department of Homeland Security's Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives. In the past, he has served many roles for the uh, organizations like the Salvation Army, including following 9-11. He's coordinated response after Hurricane Katrina while with the country's largest network of food banks. That's Feeding America. Kevin, welcome, and thanks for making the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me, Ed. 
Well, we're familiar with the Department of Homeland Security, but let's dig a little bit deeper and tell us what the DHS Center is and share about its purpose. Well, you know, when I came on, I was asked to take a position in the DHS Center for Faith and Opportunity, whether it's, you know, border security, whether we're working across in times of disaster relief, or it's just the day-to-day crisis of of needs across the nation. Faith-based organizations are on the front lines uh, taking care of that need. So there are ways that government can help to support the good things that they are doing across the community. My job is to identify those, champion those efforts, and find ways that we can take out any anything that inhibits the ability of those faith-based organizations to do what they do every day. So let's get this one out of the way right away. Having a, a government entity agency partner with uh, nonprofit religious entities, any red flags there with you know, the church-state mixture? There's a lot of perceived red flags. You know, what government does in working with faith-based organizations, um, um, and especially during times of disaster, uh, when communities recover, government is there to support the individuals, but faith-based organizations are so flexible and come and wrap around the the services that government can provide that we have to do that in coordination with each other. And we should be helping to support those organizations who are meeting those needs at the point of need. So if I could sum up your role, it probably would be to build partnerships between faith-based organizations, first responders, emergency managers. From that perspective, what role do you see that this or- these organizations can play in a recovery effort after a disaster? It's all relevant to, to most people. Um, some of the challenges we faced after uh, Hurricane Maria and the massive devastation it caused to Puerto Rico. You know, we as government and the administration wanted to mobilize resources as quick as we could to get to Puerto Rico. And in doing that, we struggled with the last mile. We were struggling at getting stuff from ports and staging areas to the last mile. But you know who didn't struggle? It was the houses of worship across Puerto Rico that know where needs are every day and they're serving those community needs. We partnered alongside and many of those resources made available. We became successful when we partnered with faith-based organizations that were able to take it that last mile to where need was. And while they were seeing those needs, they also identified other needs and they helped to be the communicator of where the real needs were and we were able to provide them resources to help serve in their community. You know, I I have heard you say that you want to be so successful at building these partnerships that you work yourself out of a job. That's right. I mean, there's no doubt that there's partnership every day going on with government, um, but there are some times where we could do better. And if all of our government and all of our communities were working in partnership together all the time, we don't need a faith center. We really don't need to have somebody on the lookout, the lifeguard stand, looking over to make sure everybody's working together. But the truth is, There are communities on the government side, but there's also faith leaders who don't know how to partner together. And my job is to help be kind of a language translator between the two to show them how they can partner and help to provide successful everyday crisis recovery, but also in times of disaster or in times of wherever that need is. That's what our job is. You're listening to Closer Look. I'm Ed Lenane with Kevin Smith. He's the director of the DHS Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives. Well, typically, Kevin, following a disaster, local organizations, they're close to survivors. They're doing what they can do to help, but may not know exactly how to work with the larger response coming into their communities. 
How does the center help with that? Well, I tell you, you know, faith leaders have a tremendous burden on them every day as people will call a faith leader of their congregation. Somebody will call and say, you know, where do I go for a good plumber? Where do I go to repair my window pane? By the way, as a preacher's kid, I can tell you, <laughs> I know those calls that come late at night. The reason they rely so much on their faith leaders, it's a matter of trust. Why they go to them for those type of questions is because they have a trusted agent who can give them something that they don't think will come with any other uh, biases. And as a result, we know that those same faith leaders during times of crisis are asked questions all the time on how do we recover or how do, where do I go for this? So part of our role of partnering with faith leaders is to empower them to know what their congregation needs are and then be able to communicate to their local government, to their federal government if it's necessary, to help support what uh, those families uh, in the, as they recover. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of example of one of the challenges we face. Um, the federal government has a program when there's a presidential declaration for individual assistance that helps families recover. And as we implement that, there are some rules, you know, if you've ever done a mortgage and you're going through the process, it's hard process stuff, right? And not all of us do it as well as others. And sometimes people will get a letter back that looks like a letter of decline when it's really a letter that says we need more information. But when government writes letters to you, they don't always look like nice, friendly letters. So they look sometimes different than they intend to be. What we want to do is work with faith leaders in times of recovery and times of disaster is to be able to say, you can be an advocate for your congregation. So if you see a lot of people who are struggling, maybe it's just an appeal that they need to make back. Maybe they didn't put the right address or didn't give the right information. And we want to empower those faith leaders to know they have a conduit for information if they need it to help be advocates for their congregations. If we had with the 330,000 houses of worship across the country, if we could empower them to be advocates for their congregates, that would build a more resilient nation. And that's really what we're about and working with the faith community. Well, we, we talk a lot about partnering during and after a crisis, but I would think it would be more effective to partner up before a crisis occurs. So how does the center work with churches and other faith-based groups to get them ready pre-disaster? That is a great question because there are, there are several ways that we work across the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security and initiatives, both from safety and security. You know, Every house of worship should be free to worship on their day of worship without a fear of an attack. We have a lot of opportunities uh, and training mechanisms to help people to build a safety and security for their houses of worship. We also have opportunities and programs on individual and community preparedness that can help them to look at financial resilience. What does it mean to be insured for a disaster? And what does it mean to be disaster prepared? A lot of us know that we've heard that we need the three days of supplies. We need this. We need water. We need food. We need, you know... Most of us just go to the store and get peanut butter and bread, right? I mean, because that's what we default on. And milk. And milk, that's right. <laughs> um, but we want to try and change that narrative. We want to start thinking about, not only about that three-day supply, but also... What does your insurance say you're covered for? You know, we lose a lot of individuals or individuals that struggle to recover because they didn't know they didn't have flood insurance. We want them to start thinking about their flood insurance, how they're going to recover. We want to start thinking about that now before the flood comes, before the hurricane, the tornado and the earthquake. What's my insurance going to cover and how am I going to use those resources and the things that I have in my own financial preparedness to be able to recover? 
Let's take a look at a recent example. Hurricane slash tropical storm Barry hit the Gulf Coast region. Thankfully, not a major disaster for the region, but certainly with all the rain and flooding, pretty pesky enough. What did the center do to prep for that? Well, let me tell you, first of all, disasters are local first. I mean, uh, every disaster hits local communities first. So the stronger the local community is in working together in partnership, uh, the more successful they're both their response, their preparedness, and their recovery uh, is. And I will tell you, in this incident, we were talking directly with um, the state of, um, of Louisiana, but also with the city of New Orleans, who has put together a very strong uh, voluntary organization community that active in disasters that come together and a great faith outreach team. So when I called uh, a friend of mine who's down there that uh, runs their program and their outreach, I called Ryan and I said, how can we help? How are you, how are your relationships going? And immediately he turned back and said, we just got off of a call. We worked with all of these churches. We're on the call. We worked with our voluntary organizations that are traditional. His outreach had already begun. And sometimes that's just messaging, telling them when to evacuate, when not to evacuate. What do you need to do? Where's the vulnerable areas in our community? And in that case, in Hurricane Barry, as it made its approach into land, they were already engaged. And that is the model of success. That's how we want every community to work together. One thing that uh, many people do not know or think about is the value that faith-based organizations bring to the community, including uh, monetarily. Uh, it's helpful because something that I was not aware of until recently, the state and at times local communities are obligated to pay back at least a portion of the funding supplied by the government to help with the disaster. That's right. You know, when there's a federal declaration, the president comes in and declares a, a disaster area, there is a cost share program. So they pay 70, uh, FEMA will pay up to 75%, which is the, the standard for most disasters, at 75% of that local community as they recover. But the burden of 25% of that recovery has to come from local government, right? So they have a uh, skin in the game, if you will, as to what their recovery looks like. Well, a few years ago, a very wise decision was made that um, local communities that volunteer and donate resources, they can use that leverage or that partnership to offset how much local communities have to pay back. And let me just give you an example, because I'm not really good at math, but I tried to put this together over a course of time. I was in Newburgh, North Carolina after um, Hurricane Florence and um, really saw how communities come together. And I went to the Temple Baptist Church uh, in, in Newburgh, North Carolina and uh, went to the parking lot. And, you know, many of you have seen disaster recovery. So you see the big parking lot with all the Southern Baptist big field kitchen in the lot. And then over to the side of that was these chainsaw teams, you know, they'll go in and cut up stuff. And those are, man, it was massive. You could see this whole shirt of yellow shirts and all these people working together. That wasn't even really the best part of the story. I walked then into their huge, uh, 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 their huge church, beautiful church. And in every side corner and every place I walked, there was a volunteer bed somewhere in that facility where they were housing volunteers from all over the place. And as I sat there, I started to quantify all that was going on. So they had 600, the local pastor said, we have 600 volunteers here a day. So I did a little quick math. 600 volunteers working between 10 to 12 hours a day for just a very small window of 14 days. I counted that 
and all the work that they were doing over a course of just 14 days, at, and I don't know if you know this, there's an average wage, if you will, that what a volunteer is worth. It's somewhere around $24 to $27. Really depends on what their, what their function is. But if they were capturing that information, that church alone, just that effort of one church and that partnership that they had, $860,000 that they were contributing to that community recovery. I remember the mayor was in the room and we were talking about this and I said, what a value of almost a million dollars just on that one church in this community. Imagine what happens when we start to aggregate that, pull that all together as a community and show the power of the faith community and how they contribute to community recovery. And from FEMA, from the federal government, we want to honor local partnerships and engagement in the way Way that they come together because for us that's how as a nation we're going to respond better after times of disaster so why wouldn't we value it so we call that donated resources the value of donated resources and it is making a huge impact on community recovery uh, all over the nation now so there are hundreds of thousands of places of worship in the country what are the filters that the center would use to determine a potential partnership serving others you know, um, we look at any house of worship. You don't have to be a mega church with 30,000 members. It doesn't matter if it's the size of the congregation. It doesn't matter whether it's small or large. If they are serving others and working in a community to help take on the challenges of life, um, the federal government wants to partner. We want to help to make sure that they are connected with the resources, both locally uh, and within their state that can help them to do more and maximize the power of the faith community. That's what we do. I mean, that's we're just a connector. And so Someday it's going to be so connected that they won't have a need for my center to be operating uh, in DHS. Uh, and that's my, I mean, that would, is my ultimate goal. And if that doesn't happen, then I'm aimed, my mission, my, uh, my goal right now is to really show people to champion the value of what the faith community contributes and continue to help them do more. You're listening to Closer Look. I'm Ed Lenane with Kevin Smith. He directs the DHS Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiative. Let's role play a little bit. I'm a pastor. I'm listening and I'm thinking, love the concepts that you gentlemen are talking about here. But with everything on my plate each week, this is feeling kind of overwhelming. How do you talk me through this initiation of a program that prepares them for an emergency? Well, first and foremost is um, I understand as a pastor's kid, the many things that a pastor has in front of them. And I'll also know that sometimes it's not within their skill set to take on some of this additional uh, responsibility in trying to help communities recover. So what my main thing is, my main outreach is, is to connect local leaders with their local government and their local emergency management, because that's where the information is most critical that they can get. And they can always raise their hand in that community if they're not sure of something with their local emergency management. Um, but I, I also understand there's so much on our plate that even going to meet meetings and some of that is, uh, it, it, it's not possible. So where do we look? Where There's a lot of resources and I have a, we have a website that is uh, at FEMA. So it's FEMA.gov slash, and I made it easy for everybody. It's FEMA.gov slash faith. You can connect there. We have an email address where they can go to, to connect. We'll help you to partner with that emergency management. And we also have a lot of tools on that website that will help congregations be better prepared. And 
you know, there's some training programs. I know a lot of people who are very interested in their congregations at building a disaster team locally. You know, they want to know how they can help during times of disaster. So in that website that I talk about, we actually have some training modules that they can sit down and take that will kind of give them a little bit of emergency management light training um, that will help them and empower them to have a resilient congregation. Final question, Kevin. Uh, as we're all aware, sometimes it's the church itself that has experienced their own emergency, violent attacks, a terrorist type attack. How does the DHS Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiative educate houses of worship on how they can prepare for something like that? Yeah, well, first, as you talk about, um, we mentioned a few minutes ago about safety and security, uh, and everyone should have the um, should feel safe that they can worship on their day of uh, of their day of worship without the fear of an attack. But we also need to make sure that we recognize there are some things we can do. We can be an aware congregation. We have found, as we've done studies out there, that uh, many of the instances that have occurred are not terrorism per se uh, of events. There are actually people that we know, people in our community. We can be eyes and ears to identify people that may be in a crisis of a crisis or a moment of crisis themselves that might actually prevent an escalating uh, violence in a community. Uh, we've learned that. And there are some real tools. There are some great programs out there online. We can connect you on that website uh, that I just gave you. But there's also some bigger stuff. There's actually some uh, grant dollars out there. This year, it was $60 million dollars to be distributed for houses of worship to prepare their house of worship and become more secure, especially if they are uh, known uh, to be targets of threats, uh, as many of our houses of worship are. But this year, Congress has gotten together and the administration have gotten together to increase that. Next year in 2020, it's actually going to move to, uh, we believe it's going to be $75 million because this is such an important thing for us that we need to make sure across our nation that we are free to worship without the fear. So we want to help prepare houses of worship. And I tell you, you start that now. Don't wait for the grant notification. You start now by putting a planning team together. Start discussing with your congregation, how can we be more aware? How can we be prepared in the event, uh, in a horrendous event uh, of an attack on our congregation? So there's a lot of tools out there and I'd be happy to connect that. Our website at um, fema.gov slash faith has those web uh, links for you. Um, and if we can be a help, that's, that's really what we're here for. And we have a lot of resources to help support you uh, in preparing your congregation. He is the director for the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiative with the Department of Homeland Security, Kevin Smith. Kevin, thank you for letting us take a closer look at helping people in our local communities. Thank you for letting me be here. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to our Closer Look producer, Brad England. I'm executive producer and Closer Look host, Maria Morgan. Set reminder, would you, to come back next week for another Closer Look. Closer Look.